You guys can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be picking it up in verse 10 of Ephesians 6. About 2,500 years ago, there was a man in China named Sun Tzu who wrote The Art of War. It's one of the most influential books on warfare, on the strategy of winning war that's ever been written. It's still used in training academies today. And if you haven't read it, that's okay, because here is the most important line, what everyone talks about. All warfare is based on deception. So 2,500 years ago, this general, Sun Tzu, he, he realized that a battle is won in the mind, not the muzzle. It's won through deception, through fooling your enemy about when and how and where you will attack. And if you can deceive your enemy effectively, you can win the battle. Well, that's true in in every war. Me, I really like reading about World War II because we have some extended family who fought in World War II and they beat the Nazis and who doesn't like reading about that? So it's really fun to read World War II history. And it is true for the allies, a lot of our victory was based on our ability to deceive well. And so in North Africa, when the Americans and British fought the Nazis, they practiced deception. They they brought it down to an art. And so they disguised all of their tanks to look like trucks. It's really a tank in there. And they disguised all of their trucks to look like tanks. And then they drove them all around the desert so the Nazis had no idea where the actual tanks were. And then here's the best part. Once the Nazis figured out that a particular group of vehicles was fake, that that wasn't really tanks, in the middle of the night, the Allies would sneak in and switch out the fakes with the real thing. But the next morning, they would leave them off, just sitting there in the desert, and the Nazis would rumble on by, thinking there was nothing there but, but fake tanks, until all of a sudden, they turned their engines on, and they lit them up from the rear. Worked really, really well. We did it again when we invaded France. In the Battle of Normandy, we actually created an entire fake army, called it the Ghost Army. It was about a thousand soldiers who were trained to mimic other battalions. And we landed them in parts of France where we would not be landing. And we gave them inflatable tanks and had them blow them up and put them all around France. And we gave them noise generators and we sent in double agents and we completely confused the Nazis about where the real battle was. And that's why we won the Battle of Normandy. In every war, deception is the key. You deceive your enemy and you win. And why in the world do you need to know that? Because whether you realize it or not, you are in a war. You're at war right now. Even if you don't feel like it, even if you didn't know until you came in, it's true. You are at war. You face a powerful enemy who is well-versed in the wisdom of Sun Tzu. He is incredibly good at deception. In fact, your enemy is the greatest deceiver who has ever lived. And he is bent on deceiving you so he can destroy you. And so my goal this morning is to get you ready to fight. This is basic training this morning. I'm going to walk you through a passage that trains you how to fight and how to win this battle you are in right now. So I'm going to walk you through three things this morning, three parts of this sermon. First, we're going to talk about who is not your enemy. Then we're going to talk about who is your enemy. And then I'm going to give you some strategies for fighting and winning. Okay, so those three parts. So let's jump right into it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So let's start that first part. Who is not your enemy? Well, Paul says you are not at war with flesh and blood. That's human beings. You are not at war with other humans. And that's incredibly important for us to say. I can't overstate the importance of that, that human beings are not your enemy. Because we live at this time in in world history, in American history, where everyone is digging trenches for war. And, And that includes literal war against terrorism and maybe against North Korea. But it also, and probably more important, includes ideological warfare. War over politics and culture and morality and and we are dividing and we are defining our sides and we are digging our trenches and preparing for war. And you see that throughout the culture. Everyone is so outraged at everyone else, so angry at everyone else. And not only do they disagree with people on the other side, but they actually hate them. I was reading this week that Jimmy Fallon, the guy who does The Tonight Show, his audience has declined over 20% since this time last year. And you know why? Because Jimmy is light and comical and he doesn't take political sides and people aren't into that anymore. People want a host who is outraged, who hates the other side, who is mad all the time. And so they flip over. Well, we can't do anything about late night TV. But we can make sure that that sense of constant outrage isn't present here. And so I just want to make this as absolutely concrete as I can this morning. Uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Roy Moore and Kim Jong-un and Harvey Weinstein have all done things I don't like very much. And yet none of them are my enemy. And I don't hate any of them. Why? Because this book tells me that all of them are made in the image of God. And because all of them are made in the image of God... When God looks down from heaven and sees Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Kim Jong-un or Harvey Weinstein, how does he feel? What does God feel in his heart when he looks at these people? Love. Not hatred. He feels love towards all of them. How do I know that? Because he sent his son to die for all of them. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for the good people. He died for all people. And so God loves them so much. He, he loves all of these people so much that his desire for them is to be saved. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Here's how God feels in his heart as he looks down at all people. It says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and humanity the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Please notice the words in all caps. What does all mean? It means every single human without exception. God loves all human beings so much that he gave Jesus to die for all human beings because he wants all human beings to be saved, even the Hitlers of this world. You understand that, right? People like Adolf Hitler, when God looks down from heaven and sees someone like that, what does God feel? Love. What does God want for that person? Salvation. So let's just be really clear that we understand. When Adolf Hitler gassed millions of Jews, pretty big sin, right? What happened to that sin? 
Well, Jesus reached forward 2,000 years in history and took it off of Adolf Hitler and placed it on his own back and died for it. Why? Because Jesus loved Adolf Hitler and wanted him to be saved. And so he died for his sins to give Adolf an opportunity to believe and be saved. Now, we don't have any evidence that Adolf took him up on that opportunity, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus loves everyone and died for everyone, even the Hitlers of the world, because he wants them all saved. And so if God so loves every single human being, then the inescapable application of that is that there is absolutely no room for hatred in our hearts towards any other human being. Yes, we can hate the evil that they do. We can hate the pain they cause in other people's lives, but we can't hate them. If that's how God loves them, then we must love them too. So very practically, what do you do? Because people are going to make you angry all the time. You can get frustrated. You can get upset. What do you do with that anger? I'm going to give you a few steps. Number one, when you feel angry at someone, let that anger be your prompt to pray. Pray for that person and please don't pray fire and brimstone for them. Pray God's best for them. Really, pray that God would work in their lives towards salvation and love and truth and wisdom, that God would protect them, that God would watch over them, that God's goodness would be unleashed in their lives. That's what Paul tells us to do. Right before the passage we just read about how God desires salvation for everyone, Paul said, I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people, even for kings and all who are in authority, not just the politicians you agree with. But all of them praying for God's best in their lives, that God would bless them and work for good in and through them. So we pray for those who anger us. Second step for you, when you feel yourself getting angry, it may mean you need to turn off the media that is fueling your hatred. If you haven't figured it out yet, news companies and social media have figured this out well. Anger builds an audience. Anger is a great marketing tool. If I can get my audience angry at someone else, they will stay engaged. Outrage grabs eyeballs. So all of your news stations understand that. That's why they're always full of breaking news that is always outrageous and anger-inducing because that keeps you glued to the screen or the website. Social media also understands that. What posts get the most clicks on Facebook or Twitter? It's always the ones that make people angry. Now, let's be clear. Sometimes it's good to be outraged. Sometimes when you see injustice or oppression, it's good to be mad at that because that anger can fuel action. So sometimes it's okay to be upset. But if you look at your life and you realize that you are constantly outraged because of what you're seeing on social media or seeing on the news, that means you need to turn it off and go for a walk. If you're watching Fox News so much that it's making you hate Democrats, you need to turn it off. If you're watching MSNBC or John Oliver or SNL so much, it's making you hate Republicans. You need to turn it off and go for a walk. There's nothing in the Bible that says you've got to watch cable news every day. So turn it off and take a walk. Don't let into your life things that fuel hatred towards another group of people. Because God doesn't want you to hate anyone. He wants you to love him just like he does. Third step for you. Pursue spiritual conversations. You may recall our goal for the semester 
This fall, we we believe that God has challenged every single one of us, myself included, to initiate at least two spiritual conversations with people who are far from Jesus. So the challenge for you is when you feel angry at people who are far from Jesus or other side of the fence on politics or whatever it might be, use that anger as a motivation to go out and share the gospel. You know that's the only thing that's going to fix stuff, right? You're not going to make things better by shouting. You're not going to make things better by arguing. The only way to make things better is to share the good news you know. That there's a God in heaven who loves that person so much, he sent his son to die for them. And rise from the dead so they can have eternal life as a free gift. All they got to do is say yes, just share that good news. Now, you may not get that far in the conversation, but you can start the conversation. So you may recall I gave you a card where you wrote down the names of two people. Do you remember that? Remember that? I hope you do. Think about those two people. Think about their faces. Think about their names. How are you doing? Have you had the conversation yet? Well, you still have about 28 more days. Still got till January 1st, 2018 to initiate those two conversations with people far from Jesus. You're in the best time of the year to do that. Christmas, it's, it's all around us. A lot of opportunities to talk about what this season is about and the hope and the joy that you have in Christ. Okay, So use your anger and frustration to motivate you to get off the couch and share the good news you have in Christ. So first thing we have to do is we have to remember that we are not at war with other human beings. That's crucial because the person you are really at war with wants to deceive you. If he can get you fighting with other humans, then you are completely a sitting duck for him. So that leads us to the second thing. Who are you at war with? Well, you know where this conversation is going. This isn't some big surprise. You're at war with the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. That's demons. You are at war with the the forces of darkness, demons and Satan. And as a pastor, a lot of people ask me, okay, what's up with demons? What's up with angels? What's up with Satan? And my answer in general is we don't know much. Because this book isn't about angels or demons. It's about us. But there are some things in this book that apply. And so I'll walk you through what I do know. God gives you enough information so you know what's going on in this battle. So what do we know about demons? Well, we know they're fallen angels. So angels and demons, same type of creature. They were created long ago. And every one of them, every demon and every angel, faced one basic choice, one moment of testing. And that basic choice was, are you going to worship God or are you going to worship yourself? Angels said God, demons said self. And when they said self, they fell. And they fell completely into evil. They are not a mixture of good and evil. They are completely evil all the time, fully bent on rebellion against God. They resist God at every turn and are completely irredeemable. So they are fallen angels. They've fallen as far as you can go into evil. We know they are ancient. We don't know when or how they were created. We just know it appears to be before this book, long time ago. Uh, Because they are so ancient, why does that matter to you? Well, it means they're really experienced. (laughs) They know human beings better than you know human beings because they've been watching them a lot longer than you have. So they're really wise. That leads us to the third point. They're more powerful and intelligent than us. Humans are no match for demons, not, not even close. And there's no human weapon, no human strength that can resist them. That's why the Bible is really clear. Even for us as believers, demons are not to be trifled with. You don't mess with that. You don't mess with the occult. You don't go after any of that stuff because they are incredibly dangerous. So very, very powerful foe. Fourth, they're numerous. We don't know how numerous, just as, as the stars in the heavens, meaning more than you can count. A whole lot of them. They're organized. 
into this kingdom of darkness with Satan at its head. And so the importance of understanding that they're organized is that they're not just out there doing, you know, frolicking around doing bad stuff. They, they have plans and they have schemes that they use against you. They're highly intelligent and they're highly organized and bent on your destruction. And in this, in this goal of destroying you, the primary weapon that they use against you may actually surprise you. Because if you watch Hollywood and what it shows about demons, it's always like really horror movie kind of stuff and possession kind of stuff and scary kind of stuff. And that's hardly ever how demons work. What is their primary weapon? It's, it's deception. They like to lie to you. That's the weapon that Satan and his demons use against you 99.99% of the time. They're going to try to deceive you. Okay, so people sometimes wonder, I'm struggling with a, a, a lie. I'm struggling to believe the truth. Is that a demon whispering in my ear? I have no idea. Bible doesn't tell you where a particular lie comes from. It could be from the world. It could be from culture. It could be from your own sin nature. It could be from a demon. What we do know is that demons are incredibly skilled at deceiving humans. In fact, the Bible tells us this about Satan, the chief demon, strongest of all the demons. It says in John 8, there is no truth in him, in Satan. He is, the, is a liar and the father of lies. Father of lies. He's actually the creator of lying. Satan is the one who invented it, not God. And so he's incredibly good at it. Second Corinthians 4, he's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Revelation twelve nine. he deceives the whole world. So he's incredibly good at deception. That is the weapon he will use against you. And so that leads us to our third and final part of the sermon. How do you fight back? If you know that Satan and his army are coming after you and they're going to use deception against you, how do you resist? How do you stand strong? And I'm going to give you six steps and I know that's a lot. I heard from somebody this week that my sermons are kind of on the long side. Sorry, the passages are just really full of stuff. And so I started out with a list of like 10 things and I narrowed it down to six and that's the best I can do. So here you go. Six steps to resisting when you are attacked by demons, by Satan, by the kingdom of darkness. So the first step you actually have already read about. Look back at verse one or not one, verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of of his might. Step number one is actually a passive step. It's depending on God. We're challenged to stand strong in the power that God has, that Jesus has. And, and that's important because we have to remember demons are almost infinitely wiser and more powerful than us. We cannot resist them. No matter what you do, you're a sitting duck if you try to do it in your own strength. Your only hope is to stand in the power that Jesus gives you because he's infinitely stronger than them. Okay, so it's only by clinging to Jesus that you have the strength that you need to stand up in this attack. And so my challenge to you, really simple application here, is I hope that you're praying every day for protection. That should be just a normal thing that you're praying. Pray that, that God, that Jesus would protect you from spiritual attack. Pray that he would protect your family, your roommates, and your kids from spiritual attack. Okay, pray that God would put a hedge of protection around them and, and protect you from the lies of the enemy because you must have God's help or you will fall. 
So for me, when I'm praying for spiritual protection, when I feel attacked, I often turn to the book of Psalms because David gave us some great verses in Psalms to fuel our prayers. So here's one that I happen to like, Psalm 18.2. You can just write this down on like a three by five card and put it in your Bible or on a mirror. And when, when you feel like you're struggling to believe the truth or when you feel attacked, you just remind yourself, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Pray that to God. God, help me to remember this. Please, today, be my stronghold, be my strength, because I have no hope without you. So step number one is passive, depending upon receiving strength through Jesus Christ. The rest of the steps are active. They're about what you do. And so we pick those up in verse 13. It says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So many of you have read this passage before. It's pretty famous. Paul describes our preparation for spiritual warfare as, as putting on armor. He's looking at a Roman soldier and the equipment that a Roman soldier would put on his body before he enters into battle. And so Paul's going to walk us through each piece of armor. The key to remember, though, in the ancient world, so 2,000 years ago, this dude, a Roman soldier, was the stealth bomber of his day. Nothing could resist Roman soldiers. They, they were basically invincible as long as they had their armor on. The point is you are invincible to spiritual attack if you will put your armor on. Okay, so let's go through each piece of armor. It begins with a belt, the belt of truth. And so Paul is challenging us to, to learn truth, to equip ourselves with truth. Now, this belt on, on a Roman soldier, it went around his midsection, big leather belt, and it protects a very vulnerable spot on his body. That's part of it. But also it serves as the anchor for everything else. So the breastplate of righteousness is supported by that belt of truth and the sword goes there and the shield hangs there. And so everything else is anchored on truth. And that's not surprising that Paul would begin there because what is Satan's primary weapon against you? Lies. How do you fight lies? Truth. You aren't going to get anything right if you don't start with the truth. You got to know the truth. It's the anchor for everything else. Now, we're not talking about just random truths out there. We're talking about the truths Paul's been teaching us in the book of Ephesians. So we're talking about truths about God and sin and salvation and the afterlife and the church, Christian truths, the essential truths of the Christian faith. You got to know them cold. You have to know them clearly. You have to know not only what they teach, but how to defend it. If somebody asks you, how do you know that Jesus is the son of God? You need to know where to go to in your Bible. You need to know how you would defend that truth. That's how you are ready to fight back against lies. I was told years ago that when they're training U.S. Treasury agents how to spot a counterfeit, they don't spend much time looking at counterfeits because they're always changing. Just like theology, there's always heresies coming in, coming out. They spend almost all their time studying the real thing, studying every detail, every line, every mark, every letter on a real dollar bill so that when the counterfeit comes, they recognize it immediately. Same principle in the Christian life. You have to know the truth so clearly 
And to such a detailed level that when a lie comes, you recognize it immediately. And so I would just encourage you, uh, if you don't feel like you have a strong grasp of truth, of biblical truth, I would encourage you to join a Bible study starting in the spring when we come back from the break, jump into a Bible study. And during Christmas break, I would challenge you, spend some time reading your Bible and maybe grab a book on theology. There's one that we recommended this year. So this little card in the foyer, you got our holiday schedule on one side and reading list on the other. And there's a lot of good books here. But the first one, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. You will enjoy it, and it is full of like that foundational truth all about who God is, Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, what they're doing. You should read that. Okay, so Delighting in the Trinity by Reeves would be an excellent book this Christmas to help you learn truth. So that's where it begins. First piece of armor you put on is the truth. You got to get that right or nothing else works. Second piece of armor that we're given is the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness, that's about obedience, and it's important to clarify that. This breastplate of righteousness, Paul's not talking about your positional righteousness. Positional righteousness means that God looks down from heaven and says, you are righteous, you are going to heaven, you are forgiven. That came at a moment in time when you believed, when you said to God, yes, your son Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead so I could have eternal life. God looked down from heaven and said, you are righteous and there's nothing that can ever change that. That's positional righteous and righteousness and that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about what we would call experiential righteousness. He's talking about obedience. If you want to stand strong in spiritual attack, you must obey. You must clothe yourselves with your righteous deeds so you can stand strong against attack. We're told in the book of James, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And those two phrases are linked. You can't have the second without the first. You can't resist the devil and make him flee unless you are submitting to God, which means obeying God. If you are allowing sin in your life, you are a sitting duck. There's no way you can resist Satan if you are compromising with sin. It's just not possible. You must choose obedience. There is no other way around it. So that's actually an important answer to a frequent question. I get a lot of people wonder, well, you guys get up there and you teach salvation by grace alone. And, you know, you believe the gospel and you're saved and you can never lose it. And it's no strings attached. So why should people obey? Well, it is true. You're not obeying so you can earn or keep or prove your salvation. That really is by faith alone. You're going to heaven if you've trusted in Jesus. So why not run hog wild in this life? Well, this is one of the answers. There's many, but one of them is if you don't obey, you are easy prey for Satan and he will destroy you. There is no way around it. And so that leads me to one of my favorite phrases. Either you are killing sin or sin is killing you. There is no middle ground in the Christian life. Sin doesn't make truces with people. Either you are actively killing sin in your life by learning to obey God more and more and more, or sin is eating you up and opening the door to satanic attack that you will not be able to resist. So you, you must obey if you are going to stand strong when the attack comes. And so I would challenge you to look at your life and think about where are you making compromises that maybe feel small. Maybe they feel like no big deal, but you need to realize they're opening a door to attack. You need to turn away from those. And so pray that God will help you to obey in every area of life. Ask someone to hold you accountable. Do whatever it takes to walk in obedience or you are doomed to failure in this life. 
Satan can't destroy your next life, but he can destroy this one. And he'll do it if you let him by walking in sin. Next piece of armor that we're told to put on, uh, I've kind of tried to summarize two related pieces of armor with one word, remember. And what I'm doing here with with remember, um, there's a couple pieces of armor that are a bit confusing when you first hear about them, but they do the same thing. The first is the shoes. So Paul challenges us to, to shod our feet in the peace that comes from the gospel. And when you look at a Roman soldier, this is a pretty good picture. Um, they wore heavy sandals when they went to battle. And these sandals were tied up over their, their ankles and, and all the way up almost to the knee. And the idea of tying them to you was to make them really secure. And then what you can't see in the picture is they would actually drive nails down through the shoe so that when you, you stood, you had nails going into the ground. And the idea was when a Roman soldier had his shoes tied securely to his feet with the nails going into the dirt, there was no one and nothing that could knock him over. He was invincible. He could stand strong when attack came. And Paul's saying, you find that stability in the midst of attack by remembering the peace you already have through the gospel. When attack comes, how do you not get knocked over? You remember, you remind yourself that you already have peace with God and eternal life through faith in Jesus. And no one and nothing can take that away from you. So I, I like the imagery of, of putting on a shoe because you do that every day. And so I encourage you, when you put your shoes on in the morning, let that be a reminder to you. Just take a moment and remember, as I'm putting these shoes on, I already have peace with the creator of the universe who has called me his child and promised me eternity in heaven. And nothing I do today can change that fact. If you remind yourself of that peace you have in the gospel and it will help you stand strong when attack comes. The same idea is in play when Paul talks about the helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation is not getting saved. Paul's not saying you need to get saved, so put that on. No, no. You're already saved. What he's saying is you need to bring it to mind. Just like the the Roman soldier takes that helmet and puts it on his head, you need to bring to your mind, bring to your remembrance the salvation you already have in Christ. You need to remind yourself all the time that you are already a child of God, that you are already forgiven, that you are not full of guilt, that God is not ashamed of you, that God is for you. As you remember these things, it will protect you from the lies of the evil one. So you remember That's the next step. After that, next step is trust. And and trust is this idea, the shield of of faith. The shield of faith is not about like saving faith when you believe the gospel. The shield of faith is about how faith grows in our lives or should grow in our lives. It's about learning to trust God more. Each and every day with more of your life, as you learn to trust God, that he's good, that he loves you, that he's working for you, that he'll be faithful to you. As you learn to trust him more and more, that acts like a shield. And so a a Roman soldier's shield was big. They carried big wooden shields and they covered them with leather that they would dip in water before they go in battle. The reason was in the ancient world, they often used flaming arrows and shot them at people and and so how do you put out a flaming arrow? We hold up your shield, and when the arrow hits the wet leather, it's extinguished. So what Paul is saying is that Satan wants to pepper you with flaming arrows, which are his lies. How do you stand strong in an assault of lies? You hold up the shield of faith, this shield of trust. The more you trust God, the more deeply you trust God, the more lies you will be able to resist. And so that actually, I think, gives us an answer to a really important question. One of the hardest and most frequent questions I get as a pastor, 
why does God allow me to experience pain? Because it's God. Sovereign. He's infinite. He says he loves you. He could snap a finger and take away all of your suffering right now. Why doesn't he do it? I don't know all the answers, but I know this one answer. He allows you to experience that suffering because it will grow your trust in him. As you walk with God through the hard things in life, it expands your trust. You, you grow in faith to trust God more deeply. God knows that, that trust only grows through trial. It's not that he likes seeing you in pain. He's not a sadomasochist. It's that he loves you so much that he's willing to allow you through that hardship because he knows it'll make your, your shield stronger. Your shield grows bigger as you learn to trust God more and more. So he allows you through that hardship so that your shield will grow larger so that when Satan attacks, you are more ready. That's the next piece, final piece of armor. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the first one that's offensive. I don't know if you notice that. All the others are defensive. So how you defend yourself against attack. You have only one offensive weapon, and it is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's this book, scripture. Scripture is your one and only offensive weapon against Satan, against demons. And so your only way to fight back against them is to use this book. And, and that is quite literally true. I want you to think back to how Jesus resisted Satan. Now, Jesus is God. So Jesus could have just like wiped out Satan with one word from his mouth. But he chose to do what you can do. So Satan attacks Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness, three times. And, and Jesus does the same thing all three times. What does he do? He quotes scripture. Actually, the book of Deuteronomy. Probably not a lot of you memorize much of the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus had He knew it down cold. And so when Satan attacks him with a lie, Jesus fights back with truth. He quotes the word of God. And what does Satan do? He runs away. And that same power is available to you. Do you want to make Satan run? Memorize this book. Memorize verses out of this book so that they are clear in your mind. It's not just that you know kind of what it says. Not just you know the gist of it. You can kind of say, I think that's in the New Testament. But you actually know it. Memorize portions of this book, and when satanic attack comes, when you feel like you're being deceived, when you feel like you're being tempted or attacked, simply say what you have memorized in this book, and demons will flee. They cannot stand against the words of this book. And so that is your final piece of armor in this battle. Memorize the word of God just like Jesus did. Well, as the men go back to prepare communion... The unfortunate thing when you read histories about World War II is that you find out it wasn't just the Allies that were really good at deception. The Nazis were quite good at it as well. And that was proven true on the evening of December 15th, 1944, towards the very end of the war in France. About uh, multiple thousands of rookie U.S. soldiers, never seen battle before. They were being trained, uh, and they went to sleep one evening at peace in a forest called the Ardennes, under a thick blanket of snow and fog, and, and they were completely at peace with the world because Allied intelligence had concluded the enemy, the Nazis, has only a handful of beaten and demoralized troops in front of us, supported by only two pieces of horse-drawn artillery. Not afraid of that. So they went to sleep. 
not realizing that actually Allied intelligence was wrong because the Germans had hidden 200,000 soldiers in that forest, supported by five divisions of tanks, of armor. And those tanks unleashed hell at 5.30 a.m. the next morning in the Battle of the Bulge. And lots of Allied soldiers died. Why? Because they weren't aware of the danger until it was too late. That's what I fear for you. I fear that you're just kind of bumping through life. And it feels kind of like everyone's life does. And you're kind of consumed with the things of this life and tests and homework and possessions and family and relationships and fun and entertainment and all of those things, none of which are inherently bad. But you're so caught up in this world that you're completely unaware of the enemy who's coming after you. You don't realize that you are in a battle for your soul right now. You're asleep. And if you don't wake up and you don't recognize the threat that is coming against you, you will be knocked down. We're told by Peter in the book of 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Who's the someone in that verse? It's not unbelievers. It's us. He's talking to believers. We have an enemy seeking to destroy us. He can't destroy the next life for us, but he can destroy this one by deceiving us and enslaving us. The only way to fight back is to wake up and realize you are at war right now, whether you realize it or not, and your only victory is found through dependence, through learning truth, through obeying God, through remembering what God has done, through growing in your trust in God and memorizing his word. And this morning, we're going to do one of those together. We're going to remember. That's what communion is about. It's actually what it means. We remember what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. And that remembering gives us strength when we feel attacked, when we feel tempted, when we feel discouraged, when we feel ashamed, when we feel guilty. The memory of Jesus' death and resurrection gives us hope and it gives us strength. And so, men, you can come forward. As the men pass the elements, I want you to take this time to just remember for a little bit what Jesus did for you. I want you to remember how much God loves you. I want you to remember the hope and the peace that you have and the next life. And I want you to give thanks for all Jesus has done for you. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this morning we do remember what you went through to purchase us out of sin. We remember the cost that you paid on our behalf so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life. We remember that the cross was an exchange. That on the cross you took your perfect righteousness off of yourself and placed it on us. And in exchange, you took all of our sin and all of the curse and wrath it deserved and you placed it on yourself. And you died suffering in our place to pay the penalty that we deserved. And then we remember that you are so great and so powerful and so righteous and so wonderful that death couldn't defeat you. 
but that you rose from the dead, conquering not only death, but sin and Satan once and for all so that we could have hope. And in your resurrection life, you have offered us all of the benefits of resurrection, eternal life with you, Heavenly Father, forever. You offer it to us as a free gift. We praise you for that. We pray, though, that now as we walk through the remainder of this life, we know that even though we are saved through faith in your Son, we know, Heavenly Father, that your enemy is after us. We know, Heavenly Father, that the kingdom of darkness is actively seeking to deceive every one of us, is seeking to destroy every one of us, and our only hope is found in you. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, help us to depend upon you today. Help us to remember what is true. Help us to remember that humans are not our enemies, but the demons and Satan are. Help us to remember that we can stand strong by learning the truth and by obeying you and by remembering what is true and accurate and by walking in faith and by memorizing your word. And I pray that we would do these steps all along depending upon you and through your spirit and your son. We pray, Lord God, give us victory. Help us to live lives of true victory over the kingdom of darkness through the grace and power of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.